Morning. It is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday kind of brings in my favorite time of the year, which is Easter. Amen? If you're a believer, you got to love Easter. you got to love knowing what God did for you and that you're going to live forever with Him in heaven, that when they put you in the grave, you're going to come bursting forth. Your body is going to rejoin your spirit, and it's going to be a party. Amen? If you don't believe that, then you need to show up next Sunday and sit on the front row because I'll make it clear. I also like Easter because they bring out the best candy at Easter, don't you? I love Peeps. Somebody told me last night, I hate Peeps. How can you hate Peeps? I mean, it's marshmallow with sugar. That's a great combo. If you don't like Peeps, you need to see a doctor. And I also like, here's my favorite. See if you've had these before. I, I, I like them from the sweet place down in Covington. I know how to get there and we'll be glad to go with you. They have those double-dipped milk chocolate marshmallows. Shaped like an egg. Who cares what they're shaped like? They're good. This is a good time of the year. And what happened on Palm Sunday, while those folks were so excited... And I want you to understand this, is because they were just like you and me. They were living in a tough world. They were living in tough times. Wasn't enough money to go around. Wasn't enough happiness to go around. There were burdens, problems, sickness, death, illness. Well, I said that. All sorts of stuff going on in their life. And they heard there was hope coming to town. So they cut their palm branches They gathered on the streets, they shouted because hope had come to town. They were about to encounter the light of the world. And I hope that's why you're here this morning. I hope that in the midst of the darkness, you've come seeking the light. We've been in this series entitled, I Am Jesus. And today we're going to look in John chapter 8. Where Jesus tells the story, or where Jesus shares exactly who he is. And it's combined with what I believe is one of the most meaningful, at least in my life, stories in the Bible. When that story comes to an end, Jesus concludes it by saying, I'm the light of the world. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to join me in John chapter 8. We're going to read the whole passage together, but then I want you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to keep coming back and talking about particular events in this story. Verse 1 says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came back down into the temple. And all of the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And Moses, in the law, commanded that such should be stoned. What do you say? And then they said, testing him, or this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. When they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone first. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, 
beginning with the oldest to the least, to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows will not walk in darkness, but rather have the light of life. It's an interesting story, isn't it? And it's interesting that Jesus combines that story, really concludes that story, by saying he's the light of the world. And I don't know about you, but I have always been more drawn to light than to darkness. It's almost like we try to hide the things we don't want known in the darkness, isn't there? Matter of fact, I've almost been afraid of the dark. I'm over it now. I was about 41, 42 when I turned my nightlight off. I'm past it now. I want you to know I've conquered that fear. I've defeated darkness and anorexia. Two things. It really wasn't that funny, guys. Both of them are gone down. You remember when you were a kid, though, and it would get dark, and you'd be alone, and you'd start to think about all the possibilities that were lurking in the darkness. My personal most fearsome adversary was the boogeyman. Now, I didn't know what the boogeyman looked like. I didn't know what his powers were, but I knew he was close, which would prompt me as a young boy to exit my bedroom and go and sleep with my mother and father. This was quite a sacrifice because my father was a terrific snorer. And no one slept near him. What were you afraid of at night in the darkness? What were your fears? Every once in a while, I have one of those nights, don't you still? Where everything looms large and problems and burdens and worries won't turn off. And you can't sleep and you fret. It's one of those times. Sometimes I play music just like that. It chimes in and I feel better. Everything looks better in the morning, doesn't it? Everything looks better when the sun comes up, except my hair. <laughs> and light is like that with darkness. It's the enemy of darkness. Scripture calls our Savior and Lord the light of the world, not just in this place. But over and over again, in fact, it commands us to reflect, to, to be a part of the light. And it talks about the contrast between light and darkness, between good and evil, between Satan and God, between Yukon and Kentucky. Slip that in to see if you're listening. This lady, what a, what a remarkable, remarkable story. And Jesus... I think, demonstrated exactly who he was in this story. And it is very, very easy to find yourself in this story, isn't it? Very easy. Because 
you and I have been right where that lady is. I want you to see this scene. And I want to, I, sometimes when, when preachers preach, they clean it up for you. I want you to see it in its filth and its mire. This lady had been caught in an act of adultery. Drugged before a crowd. Now understand, this crowd wasn't necessarily pro-Jesus. There were lots of his fans in the crowd for sure, folks who loved to hear him preach and teach, folks who wanted to see what he would do next because Jesus was always doing something marvelous and miraculous, but this crowd was also full of those who would be considered his enemies, those who used every opportunity to trip him up, those who wanted to, uh, to, to ruin his ministry. Now, we have crowd control here. You notice the bouncers, we call them ushers, greeters at the door. If you look a little suspicious, if you look like you might not say amen and and be supportive of the sermon, you might not get in here. They didn't have crowd control there in the temple with Jesus. Everybody and anybody got in. And his enemies were there in the crowd, and they had brought this woman, this adulterous woman, probably a prostitute, into his midst. They had caught her in the act of adultery. In fact, if you look at the Scripture, it's emphatic about it. In the very act. When they drug her into this crowded temple courtyard, lots of people gathered, maybe as many as a thousand. She's probably naked. Maybe a sheet wrapped around her. Makeup or what passed for it in those days, streaming down her face. Drug along the dirt, filthy. Just picture that image for a moment. The very worst moment in her life. I've had a couple like that, haven't you? When everything I wanted to keep hidden and covered came to light. When my greatest, most horrendous sin was on display. Where the crowd wasn't on my side. You ever had a moment like that? Shame upon shame, guilty. So I want you to understand exactly what was happening there. Not only the fear of being shamed publicly, but also because adultery was punishable by death, by stoning, and the rocks were in hand. They bring this lady before Jesus, really just a pawn to get Jesus to say something that might cause people not to follow him or or, or might dishonor his ministry. And, And they said to Jesus, should we kill her? That's what the law says. And yet by now they understood that he was about mercy and love. So it put him in quite a dilemma, didn't it? I want you to see three components of this story. The first is the law. 
And the law will always reveal our guilt. It's good for that, isn't it? We live in a culture who really kind of rebel against guilt, don't we? We don't like to be thought guilty. We try to rationalize our behavior. We try to point at people who are worse. We try to act like there was good cause for what we've done. If, if, if you don't believe me, I could get any state trooper to stand right here and say every time I pick somebody up, they have justification for driving too fast, running a stop line, swerving, whatever it is. I've never been picked up. I don't know. We justify our behavior, don't we? Bible is full of the law. There are law, there's law after law after law, chock full of laws. Things that you have to do in order to live a moral life. Probably the, the easiest set of laws to look at, Ten Commandments. That's the ones that God said were most important. Think about how many times we break a commandment. The other day I was seven for ten. In commandment breaking. You ever had a day like that? Huh? Anybody here ever lied? Come on. No one looking around. Eyes to the sky. Hear anyone ever lied? Yeah. Come on. Anybody here ever stole something? Some of you right now have seven or eight Burlington Baptist pens at your house that you took from here without asking anybody, don't you? Huh? Come on. How many of you have ever taken more ketchup than you needed from McDonald's and not bought a bottle of Heinz when you should have? You see, we do little things like that all the time. If you held your hand and said you were a liar, you told the truth. If you said you were a thief, you acknowledge that you've done that. What if I ask if you've ever taken God's name in vain? What if I ask if you've ever looked at someone with lust? We could go on and on. What about if there's ever been anything more important in your life than God? You see, the law reveals our guilt. And it's there for a purpose and with a purpose. It's to cause us to see that there are things in our life that are askew. There are things in our life that need to be, have to be changed. And here's why. If you never acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner, you won't see a need for a Savior. If you can't admit that there's something wrong in your life, that there's something evil, that there's something about you that's not pleasing to God, you will never, ever see a need to be connected to God through His Son, Jesus. And if you don't acknowledge that you're a sinner, Easter doesn't mean very much to you, does it? Secondly, and this comes shining through in the story. You're going to have to change a word in your outline because I made a big mistake. Really only two or three last week, but this was one of them. Love, that's the word you need to change, 
reveals God's grace. Love reveals God's grace. Jesus was asked to decide by the scribes and the Pharisees that day. He was asked to decide between law and love. And it's interesting because so often when we think of God, we think of the lawgiver. We think of the guy who is going to bring bad into our life if we do bad. We think of the guy who's going to zap us if we're not careful. When we consider God, instead of thinking about love, many, many times, especially when we're guilty, when we're shamed, we think about law. And so when Jesus was asked very poignantly and pointedly to decide, is this lady going to get what she deserves or is she going to get grace? Is it going to be about law or is it going to be about love? It's interesting to see who God is and what Jesus decided. The Bible says that he did something very interesting, that he knelt down in the midst of the crowd and he picked up a stick and he began to scribble in the dirt. Can you imagine how closely they watched? What would Jesus say? What would he write? Would it be about law? Would it be about love? Would he say stoner or would he say forgiver? He nailed down not once, but twice. What do you think he wrote? Kind of begs a question, doesn't it? Well, we don't know. But here's what I think. You want to know what I think, right? Because we could skip a whole bunch of this sermon if you don't. Let me give you three options. I think he may have written specifically because he went back down again this first word to the Pharisees. Don't you guys have anything better to do? Don't you have anything better to do? Understand that this story took place early in the morning. Anybody here a morning person? God bless you. I hate the mornings. I hate just waking up. I am a train wreck for about a half hour. It's terrible. These guys, though, had spent the whole night searching, lurking, looking, trying to catch somebody doing something wrong, and eventually they find this lady, and they drag her, but not him, before the crowd. May have been a buddy of theirs, I don't know. It takes two to tango, right? But they drag her and not him. And Jesus may have just wrote, you guys are crazy. You ought to be in bed asleep. You ought to be home reading the Bible. You ought to be making up new laws, but you shouldn't be out doing this nonsense. Sometimes I think about the church when I hear this story. Because there are so many of us who think it is the business of the church to expose sin. Often I'll have someone come and confess other people's sin for them. It's amazing. Do you know what so-and-so has done? Wow. And you know what I want to do? 
when I hear people self-righteously tell the story of another, I want to get down on the carpet with spray paint and write, don't you have anything better to do? Yeah, the law's there to reveal our sin. But what Jesus was saying is that he was about forgiveness. That our Heavenly Father is about mercy. That it's not so much what you've done, but what God will do to restore you. And for everyone who's lived out that moment of shame, for those of you who are wallowing right now in guilt, for those of you who are trying to get your head above water, trying to find hope, all you need look at is this story where Jesus offered willingly and graciously mercy. Many people think that when Jesus was riding in the dirt, He was writing the sins of the accusers. If so, what a brilliant idea. Almost a God thing, right? Maybe instead of adultery, he looked at the crowd and maybe sort of pointed and wrote pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, and so on. A few years ago, I was at a little church down in eastern Kentucky, and they weren't as uh, quiet about who they are as we are here. They had a big whiteboard near behind the pulpit back here, and on that whiteboard, there were three columns, and the first were for sick people. And under sick, there were some names and some illnesses, and they're here in the next column. It said, Salvation. And there were a bunch of people listed there that didn't know Jesus. So they prayed for their physical sickness and they prayed for their salvation. And then there were a bunch of people under a column named sins. It said a name and a sin. A name and a sin. A name and a sin. I looked closely and closely for my name. And it wasn't there. You see, it could be, though, couldn't it? As could yours. And one of the easiest ways to ignore our own sin is to search out the sin in other people's lives. Amen? But you're lying to yourself. Until you lay down your stone that you use to hurl at other people and fall to your knees and pray for grace, you'll never really understand how good God is. you never understand. The Bible says they walked away dropping their stones, the oldest to the youngest. I suspect the oldest went first because they realized this was a losing proposition. And they were wiser. We live in a world of stone throwers, don't we? We live in a world of stone throwers. Vengeance is popular. Criticism is prevalent. 
hurtfulness was rampant. I want to come to a church where there are no stones. I want to worship among a group of people who love me and who accept me and who forgive me. Who acknowledge their sin and who understand that by the grace of God and only by the grace of God do they have hope. Or maybe Jesus wrote, the past is over. Go claim your future. If so, it's consistent with the gospel, isn't it? It's consistent with why Jesus came and everything that he did while he was on the earth. It's consistent with what is taught us by his ministry every day. It's consistent with Easter. The past is over. You need to hear that today. Do you need to hear before God that your past doesn't matter? Do you understand that God has a wonderful, beautiful, ripe future for everyone in this room? past is over. Sins are forgiven and forgotten. Stones have been dropped. Go claim your future. Many great scholars, including Paul Lancaster, I heard him say it today, believe that this lady was Mary Magdalene, who followed Jesus every step of the way, who became a saint. Could be you. Your past is over. Go claim your future. When Jesus is finished with this whole event, he turned to his disciples and he said, Guys, this is what light is. You see, they spent the night in darkness looking for sin, and the moment the light came up, and the moment she came into my presence, Darkness was over. I am the light of the world. Oh, we live in some dark places, don't we? (laughs) We have them. We live in some places where sin, where the struggle, where the power of Satan is overwhelming. Dark places. But this morning, you're in the light. You are in the light. God is here. God is tugging at your heart. And the light brings with it hope. The light brings hope. Jesus said, Go and sin no more. Sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Now, it's interesting that he would choose to say that because every single person in this room knows that before you hit the pellet tonight, you're going to have a whole new list of sins, right? Jesus knew that as he spoke to that woman and asked the others in the crowd, go and sin no more. What he was saying is that you have a choice between law and love, between darkness and light. 
And what happens in so many of our lives is that we've lived in darkness so long. We've lived with addictions and struggles and obsessions and burdens. and We've lived listening to Satan so long. We've lived where it's dark. That our pupils have adjusted to the darkness. And what he was saying to this woman is, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. There's no doubt about your guilt. There's no doubt about the darkness. But it doesn't have to be you anymore. It can be different. And then he said this, Light is always going to win when it goes to battle with darkness. Light's always going to win. Good is going to defeat evil. Grace is going to defeat sin. Salvation will defeat the enemy. And every person who desires to have a connection to Jesus... Every person who will willingly come and open their heart and life to Him can live in the light. In the light. So it's time to make a choice. It's according to who you are in the story. If you're closer to the lady, if sin's there, choose to be forgiven. Choose light over darkness. Or if you're a stone thrower, you're a self-righteous, I'd like to think of a better word, but that one works, whistle-blowing, stone-throwing jerk, you are a greater enemy of Jesus than the woman caught in adultery. Did you know that? Good time to lay them down today. A good time to come into the light. Your choice. Darkness. Light. Salvation. Or confusion. Hope. Or hopelessness. Would you pray with me? Father, right here, right now. This place of your grace and mercy. I pray that every person in this room who has a burden, who has a hurt, who struggles with emptiness, who struggle with sin, would find their moment of grace. Every person walking in darkness and confusion would see the light. Would find hope. You see, it's so easy, Father, to come and go, to find a way to rationalize, to find a way to walk out of here without changing. But it never works. It never gets any better. There's never any peace. 
until we walk in the light. Give us the courage to step into faith, light, love, and liberty right now. In Jesus' name, amen. On my right and on my left are opportunities for you to share in communion, for you to come as a family or with a friend and say, thank you, God. Thank you for giving me grace that I didn't deserve. That's what communion's about. Undeserved grace. Maybe you need to come and pray for any number of things that might burden your heart today. But this place, this altar, is a place to meet God face to face. Don't leave here without that encounter if that's what you need to do. Come talk to me. Tell me what God's doing in your life, what you'd like Him to do. You can come join this church. It's a good place to be, full of good people. We've gotten rid of most of the folks that have any stones anywhere nearby. It's a safe place. You come today as we